0: Okay. Good morning. Let's go ahead and get make our beginning today. We are going to look at the transfiguration and prayer. Uh, when we, uh, you know, there's there's so much to talk about when we think about uh, the life and devotion of the early Christians, and we can imagine, right? what an effect something like the transfiguration would have had on the disciples. You have Peter, James, and John going up a mountain and it was customary for Jesus to go to quiet places to pray. And that is something for us to remember that that Jesus would would get away quietly for prayer. Um, So for us, that's something for us to do too. We need regular times of quiet for prayer and contemplation. And Luke's gospel has an interesting order to it. In Luke chapter 5... At the beginning, Jesus calls the first disciples. And and then he does more healings as evidence for who he is. And then uh, in the midst of that, Jesus withdrew into the desert to pray. But then in Luke chapter six, verse 12, Jesus went to a mountain to pray. And we need this um the the uh the word for scholar when we think about scholar who do we think about when we think about a scholar what is a scholar
1: professor
0: say that one more time
1: professor
0: yeah professor somebody that knows all this stuff right and so the word scholar comes from the greek word scholazo which means to have a time of leisure That's pretty good. I like that. I'd like to be that kind of scholar, you know. Have a little bit of leisure, relax, think about things. Ten years, you get a sabbatical. Oh, there we go. Ten years, you get a sabbatical. All right. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, you do see this with Jesus. Jesus takes time for leisure. He takes time for quiet. The transfiguration is an interesting account. It's, an, it's mind-boggling, in fact. So mountains are a place for Jesus to retreat and then to entreat the Heavenly Father. And this happens in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see mountain narratives and There's Mount Sinai, which is also Mount Horeb, Mount Moriah, which is also Mount Zion, and then there's Mount Carmel. The two figures in our text, Elijah and Moses, are interesting figures in and of themselves. They are prophets. They had accounts on the mountains. So 1 Kings chapter 19, verse eight through 13, deals with when Elijah goes into the cave, he's on a mountain and he goes out of the the mouth of the cave and then the Lord comes. Remember this narrative, this account? And there's earthquakes and fire and lightning. But then the Lord speaks to Elijah in a still small voice. So Elijah has a mountaintop experience. And that's in 1 Kings 19. And it happens. So if you kind of think about these things, so try to picture in your head or categorize. There's this situation with Elijah. There's another situation with Moses. And then you have the transfiguration with Jesus. And then Moses and Elijah show up. Elijah had fled from Jezebel and went up to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. That's when he has this encounter with the Lord. Now there's something about this called the council of Yahweh, the council of the Lord. So this is important and does factor in to the transfiguration. The council of Yahweh comes from a Hebrew concept called the word is sowed and it means secret counsel. It also means friendship. And in the Old Testament, this gives sense to the notion of scripture. So this comes out in different places in Jeremiah 23 verse 18 and then 22 it makes mention here let me get to it Jeremiah 23 18 and 22 this concept is used it says for who among them has stood in the council of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? And then down in verse 22, same thing. But if they had stood in my counsel, sowed in Hebrew, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. This is, this, is, this is part of the notion of Scripture as God's Word, and it's given from God to the prophets. And so what happens is, Elijah comes on this mountain, Mount Horeb, and he has a sowed experience with Yahweh. And it comes in a still small voice. Okay? It doesn't come as lightning and thunder and earthquakes, but it's quiet. Okay? Same thing in Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, Moses goes up the mountain. And there we really see a picture that mirrors the transfiguration. And he receives the tablets, the two tablets. And he speaks in this case, in Exodus 24, 15 to 18, he speaks to God after the first covenant is breached by him breaking the first tablets. And he persuades Yahweh to show mercy and renew the covenant. So Moses has a council of Yahweh moment on the mountain. And it even says in Exodus 33, verse 11, God spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. So it's the same concept. So here's what's, what's happening in the midst. And this does have everything to do then with the transfiguration. Because to, to hear God's word is to know him as he means to be known, which establishes relationship and establishes friendship. This is very important when we talk a little later here this morning about prayer. This is why in the Lutheran church, in historic Christianity, really, you see prayer and the word Together Because we speak, we pray, and that's that 's our upward movement to the Lord, and then the Lord responds through his word, and so this is the continuation of the concept of sowed secret counsel, and it comes out in different places, like job. 29, verses three and four. It's mentioned where it says, I'll start at verse two. Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head and by his light, I walked through darkness as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent. You see that? That's the word sowed in Hebrew. If you were reading the the Hebrew Old Testament right now, you'd be like, oh, they're sowed. It implies that the Lord has shared his word and his truth with, with, with you. And... Same thing, one more in Amos chapter three, verse seven. And I think this is very definitive of this whole concept that's swirling around. Amos three, seven. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. His secret is this. What is happening then in the transfiguration is all of this coming together, where God's secret counsel is revealed and our hearts and our minds are brought to light. And this is very much the piety and the practice of of Christians that when we gather around the altar we gather in church and we we pray and god's word is preached and read and spoken and the psalms are sung god is revealing to us his divine truths which gives sense for why St. John Lutheran Church is the way that it is in in the sanctuary. Everything that it is, our art, our piety, our reverence, the liturgy, it all is impressed and informed by this concept. In, In many ways, our, our liturgical life is like the transfiguration being played out again. So with both Elijah and Moses, they spoke with God on mountains. They were coming out of difficult circumstances, and they were in the secret council of Yahweh. And so that I don't lose sight of this, but to put, put it all together... As you know, as we have gone through some different studies, um, the straight road that I've talked about on numerous occasions, whenever it says straight or upright, this is another Hebrew word, which is yashar. And what is amazing in the Hebrew Old Testament is that these two concepts, go they're always together. Like, you'll have this happen, and then this follows. God reveals his secrets to the people, and then the road is made straight. You see? It's, It's all over the place. And you see this with John the Baptist. In the Gospels, John the Baptist is the Yeshar, saying, "Make straight the road," and then Jesus is the Sod, the secret counsel that is revealed. So it comes in reverse in the Gospels. Then Jesus comes, and then, of course, the road is straightened by Christ and His cross. Okay, so take a look at page two, and let's go to Luke chapter nine, starting at verse. 28. And let's just read it to get refreshed. We all know this, but it's good to hear it again. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. And there you have it. Now, if you read ahead just a bit, maybe we should just include this other section here. On Because it is, it is germane to all the other stuff. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished. At the majesty of God. So, you know, you think about that, if you recall back to Elijah and Moses, at the bottom of the mountain was trouble. Remember? You know, Israel, you know, they're playing around with the golden calf at the bottom with Elijah. Jezebel's after him. A lot of the Israelites are going in different directions. It's a mess. Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain with Jesus in the serene, secret council of Yahweh, which is where you'd like to stay, right? I mean, this is so tangible for us, right? I want to just come to church and just sit in church and be at peace, right? It feels really good just to be in church. But then I got to go back out into the world, you know, and I got to deal with all the stuff that's out there, and I've got... You know, job issues or I've got family issues, health issues, and the world's going crazy and Ukraine and Russia and everything's all out of whack. And I just would rather stay on the mountain, right? So it's very tangible for us. And so you have Jesus. Jesus comes down the mountain So let's take a look at this for just a few minutes and and draw this towards our own life of prayer. So eight days after these sayings. So what would be significant about the eight? Well, it's
1: like uh, it's the day after the Sabbath or when Jesus
0: rose. Yeah, so it's like symbolic of resurrection, right? And then this becomes symbolic of baptism, the eighth day. Right? So you've got all that going on. Resurrection day. So that's, that's at work here. And then Luke says that Jesus was praying at the time of his baptism. So you have, you have this notion of this sense of prayer because he goes up on the mountain in verse 28 to pray. And then we have the the appearance, the changing. And and as everything is changed, he's dazzling white, his face changes. He's in white garments, which symbolize joy and celebration. Yes?
1: So, I had done a study of Leviticus some years ago. Because oh. it's, it's a book that you can breeze past because it's, you know... So heavy. Oh, yes. But it's heavy for a reason. You touched on the liturgical component. Um, yeah. I could not read Leviticus without seeing the transfiguration when I read it. That's cool. When you got to the Day of Atonement and you, you find out that the priests have to put on their white garments and you get the verse and the transfiguration story Um where, where he's talking to them um, about, uh, spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And you realize that Jesus is preparing himself as the priest for the final sacrifice. And when I read through Leviticus and saw that, I thought it was incredible. And then you guys today still wear white robe.
0: Exactly. It's all connected. Yeah, that's a very good, very well thought out point and reflection that, you know, it is all connected. You know, the sense of being purified and being made holy and the wearing of white. And, you know, in the ancient church in the catechumenate, they they would approach the font with white garments or they would put on the white garments. And so, you know, you And then they would process, and you just the whole thing is connected, and so that is that 's very meaningful and you see this there 's heavenly garb, like in daniel seven nine in acts one verse ten, Luke has men, perhaps angels in white garments at the ascension, and in dazzling clothes at the resurrection, and so Moses and Elijah appear and you know, if you've ever wondered, and they're, they're, they're talking, right? There's Moses, there's Elijah, there's Jesus, everything's all different. They're talking, and you're like, what is going on? And, and I've even had people ask me, like, what, we, what, what do you think they're talking about? <laughs> what are they talking about? I don't know. You know, the coming, you know, his journey, right? The coming crucifixion, uh, But it's more of this theme of the secret council of the Lord. And they're in secret council now. And, you know, part of the interesting thing, I think, too, is in Moses' case, he couldn't enter the promised land. But now he's able to come and join Jesus. But then... The uh, in verses thirty-two and thirty-three, they're overcome with sleep. And this is this is very striking to me. Um, Peter wants to make three tents, and this is an allusion to the feast of booths. And the feast of booths was a feast where they would they would make these temporary tents, and they would you know it was kind of a harvest festival kind of thing and they would adorn it with with fruit and produce and they would sit and they would wait and the feast of booths was a feast where even gentiles were invited to that one so it has a broader scope to it What did they wait for Well in in many ways it was a reflection on the Exodus and you know, the waiting of the Lord to come and restore them and that. Yeah. And Peter has this, you know, this, that silly suggestion that, you know, we need to make three, three tents. And as, as Stephen says, the most high does not dwell in houses made with hands. And that's why it's kind of silly, but that's what Peter did. And one thing, though, let's see here. In verse 32, when they were overcome, and I think I mentioned this later, yeah, in prayer in the midst of heavy burdens, but to be overcome with sleep in the Greek is more than just I'm tired. It's like a weight. but we'll get to that when we get to the end. And so the cloud approaches and overshadows, and this reminds us of the cloud enveloping Moses on the mountain, as well as the one leading people in the desert signaling God's presence. And Elijah, too, saw a cloud from Mount Carmel. And this is reminiscent of the tent of meeting in the wilderness, you know, the overshadowing of the cloud and God's presence coming down and speaking to the people. And it's a blessing for the people. When God comes and he comes down in this in this cloud, he has a word on his lips and it's a blessing. And then in verse 35, a voice came out of the cloud. This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Just like at the baptism of Jesus. And then when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and told no one in those days, anything of what they had seen. When I think about this text, I think about it like as, as a in photography, the positive and the negative, and they're like in some ways like opposites. Because you have Moses on the mountain with the two tablets, okay, and then you have Jesus, and he has Peter, James, and John, okay? And so you have a human being here, right? And you have God and man, right? God in the flesh. And both have the cloud and the speaking, God speaking. And both come down Both come down to chaos. Moses, when he comes down, he's coming down with divine oracles, right? So when we think about the 10 commandments, they are God's word and the first written word. And that's important. With the finger of God, the word of God came to be written. And so of course, Moses follows suit then. God writes scripture down. He tells me to do it. I write scripture down. The 10 commandments, the word of God, you know, the words that were meant to bring life, bring death, as St. Paul says. But it is God's word, so it is revealing. But it is a hard word. It orders life, but it also exposes our sin. So on one level, you know, he's coming down with the law. As he comes down, his face is shining with the glory of God, and that is an amazing thing in and of itself. It was so disturbing, as you probably remember, that the people of Israel were like, "Hey Moses, I, you know, we don't mean to be offensive, but could you cover your face? <laughs> you know, give the poor guy a complex, you know? Yeah, but it's too holy, right?" they could not behold his face. So the picture is he's a sinful human being like the rest of us, but he's coming down with the glory of God. Jesus is God who himself is transfigured. So his face changes and it disturbs the three disciples immensely. But when he comes down the mountain, he doesn't come shining in the glory of God, but he comes as one of us. You see, photo negative in a way. You know, that's kind of the way I look at it. You know, it's the the opposite image. And he comes down, not with the 10 commandments, which are to bring life, but bring death, but he's coming down with the disciples who will become gospelers, who will proclaim the, the life that Christ has brought. And we see in this little picture then the mercy of our savior to care for us. And so let's talk about this in terms, yeah, go ahead, Jody. Why about oh,
1: so many times in here, and like this, why would they not go tell everybody? I mean, if something happened like this, wouldn't you want to tell anybody Why didn't they always say and they don't tell anybody?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. What do you all think? What? What do you? Why would? Uh, why would they be told not to say anything? They're told not to say anything? Well, in some cases. I
1: mean, this one—it doesn't sound they were. It doesn't say.
0: It doesn't say they were told to right. It says
1: they didn't tell. Them.
0: They didn't tell anybody. Yeah, so we don't know in this case if it was like like I don't even know where to begin, right? <laughs> they're going to think I'm crazy and they're going to put me away, <laughs> right? So, you know, maybe there was that. But in other cases though, uh he said to tell people don't he heals somebody and says don't say anything to anybody and then what do they do? Right? You know, like Pastor Brusek always says, you know, we do what Jesus tells us and everything's going to be great. But then what do people do? They never do what Jesus tells them. You know, same thing. So,
1: Reverse psychology.
0: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, it could be that, reverse psychology. But there is something else, though, that is um, very subtle in the Gospels. And that is he starts off trying to reach the Jewish people. And so he really needs to get in the temple so that he can teach. The problem is, is the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish lawyers, they all start catching wind of all that's happening and the news gets out. But what it does is it creates dangerous situations for Jesus so that that prevents him from continuing to be able to teach in the city. And so he has to then go out a ways and teach. And initially he really wants to teach his people. And so he doesn't want any obstacles to get in the way of that. Um, but it doesn't take long. You know, the the buzz and the it, it really caused a, a lot of a lot of trouble for him. Yeah.
1: Is it not uh, the same today that the Jews are still persecuting uh, the
0: Christians? Yes, I do think it is. Uh, yeah, and yes. And I mean, it is It is a difficult thing, right? Because uh, persecution, you know, I read articles here and there, and uh, persecution against Christians worldwide is like... An, An all-time high. Um,
1: It's more acceptable to be any other religion than to be Christ. It
0: is. It is. And so, you know, what do you do? (laughs) Right? Like you're putting your life on the line in some places and in some cases. The
1: church should pride, because that's what happened right after Jesus.
0: Yeah, and it is true that uh, in times of in times of persecution, Christianity has thrived. Has thrived. And maybe you've heard this from uh, one of the other pastors before, but you know, there's this this line that uh, the blood of the martyrs is seed for the church, uh, and it's true. Yeah.
1: Well, I think the other thing, if Christ had come down glowing as Moses had, it would almost have repelled people from him. He came back down with his humanity to walk next to us, not to Lord over us.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. Yeah, his ministry, walking down dusty roads, wouldn't have been so good if he was called Majesty. Um, and it goes also to the
2: theology of the cross versus the theology of the glory. It is. John glory.
0: Um, that's right.
2: That's different than what he wants to
0: do. It is. The theology of the cross. That's right. Yeah, he comes as one of us, right? He comes to die. You know, the theology of the cross. He He comes to take our place to be one of us. And that's a great... That's a great point. And I think that is central to the transfiguration. So when we think about... Yeah, please, Kathy.
1: Uh, in Matthew uh, verse, uh, 17, verse 9, talking about the transfiguration, uh, it says as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised
0: Oh, I forgot about that in Matthew. Thank you. And then the disciples asked. Him, Why did the teachers of the law
1: say Elijah must come first? Because they're like seeing Elijah, but Jesus is blowing and... Wait a minute, Elijah was going to come first, but you came first and now you're blowing. And he said, well, then he pretty much tells them, well, yeah, Elijah has already come. It was John the Baptist. So they're starting to fill in the pieces of what's going on.
0: That's right. Yeah, they're filling in the pieces. And it'll all make sense after his passion, right? And they know
1: what when John the is prison. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. we'll, we'll keep quiet. This time.
0: Yeah, yeah. And if you look at if you look at early early Orthodox icons of the transfiguration, you know, the the, the, the disciples are like flung back and you know hiding their eyes and um, you know the sense of God's Christ's glory and majesty is too much, too much for us, but we see who he is. He's God and man, and we see his mercy and his love, Uh, and we see they saw a little glimpse of heaven, you know, just a little foretaste. Yes, any other questions or comments? This is good. You think about prayer and the Christian's life of prayer. And we have an elevated altar. You know, if you go in and you sit in the pew, and you'll notice, you know, how high it is, right? And this is thematic of mountaintop experiences. People go up mountains to see God. And so in a similar way, our architecture lends itself to that, this ascending towards heaven as God descends upon us. And there's a deliberate time of prayer and a deliberate space for prayer. So we live in a busy world. And it's hard sometimes to pray, particularly um, if things are going too crazy and your your head is, your mind is all filled up with the troubles of life. Now, sometimes that's a great... Some would say that's, the, that's a great time to pray. I can pray really well when things aren't going well. That's tr- true, I think. But if we are overcome with trouble. I think prayer can be difficult. Uh, Trying to find the words. What do I pray for? How do I pray? I mean, I've even had college students at Concordia who have come up to me after I teach on prayer, and they say, I just can't stay focused. You know, does anybody does anybody feel that way? <laughs> I just can't stay focused. You know, I know what I got to pray, and I sit down, and then my mind's all over. Right, and so for us, there is a holy rhythm, and it's we we are rhythmic people. If you just think about your life, most people like to do the same things at the same time each day. Patterns. Does anybody reflect those words? (laughs) Yeah? And with children... I would love to be that person. Yeah. (laughs) I know, I know. Sometimes... Yeah, with children, it it really causes us trouble, doesn't it? Um, But, yeah, so, you know, this notion of having a rhythm is good because it aids us then in a prayer life. So we need deliberate time and we need a deliberate space. And wherever that space is for you, you know, maybe it's sitting on the, on your back deck, you know, for 15 minutes when the kids are in the bath or, you know, taking a nap and you, you know, Your husband's not bothering you, you know, and you know he's not going to come in wanting something, and you can just kind of chill. But, you know, rhythm is really, really key.
1: But this, too, is why God instituted the Sabbath, the festivals. Yeah. Not that he needed to be worshipped or have sacrifices at particular times. He knew that we needed that rhythm.
0: We need that rhythm. That's precisely it. And so, you know, just kind of think about that. And also, too, we uh, we often, I don't know, if maybe you don't feel this way, but, you know, I'll speak of myself, that often I feel like, all right, this is, this is me and the Lord, so, you know, I got to make it really good. And it's, you know, which means I have to read all the Psalms. <laughs> I have to read all of Psalm 119 or it doesn't count, right? No, that's not it at all. You know, it doesn't have to be... I've got my watch on and it's gotta be 30 minutes or else it's not good time with the Lord. No, it can be short time. You know, what is really important is space, a space, deliberate time, rhythmic time, word of God, prayer. So just like this, the council of Yahweh, you come, the Lord comes, you come together, he comes with his word, you speak, you pray, and then you go back to life it's It's like the Transfiguration it's like Elijah on the mountain as he wraps his head up to go out to meet the Lord with his cloak. It's like Moses speaking with the Lord, and you know it can be a little bit of time, a little bit of time here and there. But rhythm is so critical. Look upon the face of Jesus. Yes, go ahead. Well,
2: I guess I was thinking about what you're saying about like the rhythms and even like identifying how I like I'm not always great at keeping, you know, a really strict rhythm, but um, I don't know if anybody's ever heard of like
0: habit stacking. Habit stacking? I I don't know what that is, actually. It's just the idea I got. Okay. You can
2: keep adding things to it, so it's like you always brush your teeth, you know. So just attach oh. something to brushing your teeth, and for me, like that's worked really well. And having so many things that I have to do all the time, so like I mean, and it could be anything, but like for me, my like, having babies, it's like you're putting babies to bed all the time, <laughs> and so like each of my kids, every baby, like there's one little target thing that I'll sing to them every time we go to bed, and it's like it's got God's word in it, and it's it's almost like, you know, the rhythm of hearing those same words over and over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. I find it's like, they're with me all the time. And so then it becomes prayer, where it's like, it's hearing God's word and it's prayer and it's usually attached to something I have to do. So it could be, you know, it could be dishes. It could be every time you are washing dishes. It could be whatever. But yeah. It's just that's like,
0: true. That's really
2: As somebody who I don't always feel like I'm great, and being like, okay, I'm gonna step out of my life and like get into this other thing, but instead like attaching it to some other part of my life. Yeah. That I have to do anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. That's very good. Um, You know, Luther, Luther talked about how, you know, as he got a little older in life, he was often in prayer. You know, just. It was life, right? Like he would walk to the market and he'd be walking along the you know the merchants and looking at the fruit and the produce and the fish, and he would find himself in prayer. You know, and it just like so what happens is is we do need a little bit of discipline so that we are hearing God's word in the midst of prayer. Because what happens is scripture then begins to form our own words for prayer. So like in Lutheran theology, there's this real technical Latin terminology. You know, there's the norma normans and the norma normata, okay? And the the norma normans is scripture. And scripture norms our belief and norms are confession. The norma normata is the normed norm, which would be like the creeds and our Lutheran confessions. And so we're speaking and confessing those creeds which have come from the scriptures. Does that make sense? So scripture gives us the words to use and the way to confess. Okay, okay. Um, scripture can do the same thing with prayer. So if you have, if you for, if you can, as best as you're able, form a habit of praying Scripture, then that's the Norma Normans. Scripture is forming your prayer life through Scripture, and then your own prayers will start to sound like the Scriptures. So what happens then over time is um, you will pray from the heart, and your prayers from the heart will sound just like the Psalms. And and so it's sort of like this multi what you know this multi layered activity of how the Scriptures and your words are so entwined that. You don't know the difference, and that helps us when we're busy, right? Because then you're in the kitchen, and you're moving about, or you're you know, changing a diaper, and you know you're saying a few prayers while you have just a moment, and and scriptures rolling around in your head and in your heart. That's very helpful. Yes.
2: Uh, Dr. Klein, I talked about that too, and uh, also like humility. So in uh, hymns, or like to say, like, my kids are, we do a hymn usually every day. Yeah. And then they're just like singing it throughout the day because it's become yeah. an ingrained thing. It's, it's what's on their mind, you
0: know. That's awesome. That's yes, awesome. You don't have
2: to pause to do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you don't have to pause to do that.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, that is so good. Yeah, hymnody too. And... And as you know, right, like hymns hit a different, sung words hit a different part of your brain than spoken words. And so there's a whole lot going on. So yeah, it's, that, that's all so valuable. And so look upon the face of Jesus as you pray. And so it's very similar to the transfiguration. Now they couldn't look at the majesty, right? But we look at his face that's like ours. And then, this is really cool to me, prayer in the midst of heavy burdens. So in verse 32, when it says that now Peter and those who are with him were heavy with sleep, the word in Greek I put there on the page, bare, and it it is a burden. They are burdened. This is a Spiritual weightiness, a spiritual heaviness. So if you ever feel this way, I mean, it's very similar. Our lives are very similar to this. We're living life. The world is going crazy. Our lives are busy. Our minds are are overcome with thoughts and things, worries, concerns. And it can choke out prayer. And Paul talks about this in Galatians 6, verse 2. The whole section is really good. Starting at verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. And then in verse two, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And that is the same word in Greek, bear one another's burdens. It's the same word. It's, it's the trouble of sin. It's the trouble of life. It's things are spinning out of control and it's, it's Elijah running from Jezebel. It's Moses dealing with the people of Israel. It's the disciples at the bottom of the mountain who are trying to cast out a demon and the father's getting upset and nothing good is happening. It's, it's, this, it's this spiritual weightiness that overcomes us and makes it hard to draw into the spiritual, to draw into the holy of the Savior. And so Jesus then descends with us into the plain. He comes down from the mountain. And so you come to church, you come to divine service. You can see where Jesus descends from the mountain. He comes to our hill, the altar, and he feeds us. He gives. He deals with the evil. So the Eucharistic life, the body and blood of Christ, is then this answer. We come to the Eucharist. We take our troubles. We take the, the, weighty, the spiritual weightiness that overcomes, overcomes us and is causing spiritual slumber, and we let Jesus feed us with himself. And then he stays with us as we journey out and away from the, from the altar and we go back out to the world. We are not alone. The things that we feel powerless with, Jesus deals with. And so then that aids our life of prayer outside. Yes.
1: Pastor, the apostles say, no.
0: Say that one more time.
1: The, the apostles, they could heal later on.
0: They could heal later on.
1: It's, it's funny that they couldn't do it. Right,
0: right then. then, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, this, I always, I always struggle with, what do I tell you and what do I leave for later? <laughs> this, this is, uh, if you look at Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 10, maybe we can look at this another time because we're about out of time. But the, uh, the apostles go um, up on the housetop to pray in one instance. So there's a little bit of, uh, you know, maybe they, maybe this is what they do because this is what Jesus did. You know, you can't go, up, can't go up a mountain, and I can't go to the temple to pray, so I'll go up on the housetop and pray. And what's amazing is in those in Acts three and Acts ten, um, amazing things happen in the midst of prayer, especially in one of the in one of the occasions. I think it's Acts ten. Peter, it? Yeah, with Peter. Didn't fall off the roof?
1: Didn't someone fall backwards?
0: Oh the one young guy fell out of the out of the window. Yeah, he fell asleep. Yeah, and there was preaching going on, so. (laughs) That's right, that's why we only preach for 10 minutes, you know. We don't want anybody falling out the window and (laughs) falling out of the pew, you know. We don't need any of that kind of liability, so. Um, But at any rate, like Acts 10 is one of these great examples where there's Cornelius and uh, then there's Peter down in verse nine. Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, which was a temple prayer time, noon. You know, So there's more of that rhythm. And same thing in Acts chapter three, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So they were going to the temple in that case. And then... Uh, just well we 're out of time um, but second Peter chapter one is a little bit of commentary that Peter gives about the transfiguration and let 's just take a quick look at this and then we'll we 'll break because I see my time is is up. Verse sixteen, so this is uh second Peter 1, 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I mean, that in and of itself could be another half hour because it connects back to this. What Peter is, Peter being a Jew that knows the Old Testament is reconnecting for us the theological import of the transfiguration and the normative character of the Word of God through this concept. And there you have it. So, but let's go ahead and break for today. Thank you so much for coming and the time. And let's, let's pray the collect for transfiguration and uh, end with a benediction. O God, in the glorious transfiguration of your beloved son, you confirmed the mysteries of the faith by the testimony of Moses and Elijah. In the voice that came from the bright cloud, you wonderfully foreshowed our adoption by grace. Mercifully make us co-heirs with the King in his glory and bring us to the fullness of our inheritance in heaven. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. And the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen. Amen.